word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we stand before thee, we want to invite thee into our presence as we would open thy word together, that the thoughts expressed would be from thy heart, from thy mind, delivered through lips of clay. Be with us now as we would meditate together on thy word and teach us from the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Brother Allen was meditating on the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, my thoughts actually turned to the first chapter of John's general epistle to the churches. So 1 John chapter 1. I'd like to read the first chapter, uh, continuing into the second. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. 
Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. I'd like to conclude with the 11th verse. You'll, of course, see many parallels between this passage in Scripture that we've read and the first chapter of John. Indeed, they were written by the same author, and the perspective is very similar. In fact, it's almost an amplification on what was preached this morning. John begins in the logical spot. He begins by talking about his experiences with the Lord. He was there with him. I would say, arguably, he was the closest disciple to Jesus Christ. He seems to have also been the youngest. It was his head that lay on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He heard that divine heartbeat. When all his disciples abandoned him at Caiaphas' house, John went in and called Peter and brought him. And finally, when our Lord hung on the cross, his only true possession other than the cross, his mother, he gave to this disciple. Care for her was to be his responsibility. It's interesting to see what he says. We've seen with our eyes, we looked upon our hands, have handled of the word of life. In the chapter we read this morning, it talks about in the beginning was the word. John had the picture in his mind of this one that predated all creation, that was the, the embodiment, the person of the expression of God to man. He was the word, the message of God to man, made flesh. Well, I'd like to stop and just think about that for a moment, if you will. Through inference, we can gather by viewing the creation that there is a God who created these things that we see. The complex systems that are so finely tuned and balanced did not spring from chaos and then proceed to order. That would run contrary to the laws of physics that are called laws because they are no longer theories. They are testable. Perhaps nowhere 
more clearly than with children. <laughs> it doesn't take long to take a room that was in order to turn it into chaos. And it doesn't proceed back to order very easily. So we can, through, through inference, we can gather that there must have been a being that created these things. Through inference about ourselves and what we know about moral law, we can also infer that there must be a moral lawgiver. We know inherently what our rights are and when they are violated. We understand love, and when it's expressed to us, we have a desire to reciprocate. We can see all these things, so they give us a picture of what this God must be like. But the details, those were unknowable. There was a special re uh, revelation given to a small group of people through a line of patriarchs. We can read about them in the Old Testament. They were given direct revelation from God. They were special because of that. But to mankind in general, this revelation was not given. It says in Acts that God winked at this ignorance. He turned a blind eye to it. But then, then, in the fullness of time, it says that the word became flesh. This is perhaps one of the reasons why I don't believe, just to take a little diversion here, in the, the theory of Christophanes or, or Christ appearing at different points in the Old Testament. I read about the fullness of time and the majesty of the incarnation, and I don't think that Christ came in and out of time in different forms. I think he came once. In the fullness of time, the word became flesh. That was a monumental event that God himself would clothe himself in finite, limited flesh and blood to finally communicate the truth about God to his creation. And what was that truth? What was that revelation? If I could say it in one sentence, it would be this, that God is our Father. God is our Father. When you think about that for a moment, a mystery hidden in the past, God speaks to them out of a burning bush, out of a bright, bright and glorious light, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple so that all humans had to get out of his presence. The one in Isaiah that was meditated on not that long ago from this pulpit, whose train filled the temple. That same God is our Father? I don't think we would have ever known that had not Christ come and explained that to us and showed us what it was to be a son of God. That was truly momentous. That's also why I begin most of my prayers by speaking to the Father, the one who loved me, the one who created me, and the one who first reached out to me to redeem me and sent his son to die in my place. That's a tremendous revelation that we would not have understood had Christ not come. So this man, John, 
writing from a first-person perspective, having seen, having handled this word of life, writes these things. And it's so interesting to see how simple he keeps this. This epistle is perhaps best thought of as a yardstick for the Christian. There are things that he writes in here, and they're simple. These are for us each individually. The interesting thing about the things that he lays out for us here is we can't take this this ruler now and hold it up to someone else and measure them, at least not very well. It's meant first to be applied to us individually. He says this, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love. He wrote a great deal about that subject. And really, the only way to discover what love is is to be in a relationship with someone through which you can express love. Love is meaningless on its own. When love has no object, it cannot be demonstrated. And so John shows us how we know that the Father is love. God doesn't say he's full of love. He says he is love. He also says something else. He is light. Brother Allen meditated on that this morning. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light speaks to truth. It's analogous to it. When the Bible talks about light and darkness, it's talking about truth and error. The interesting thing about that light, you know, as Brother Allen was meditating this morning, and he read through the section talking about John the Baptist and how the priests and Levites went into the desert to talk to him and said, who are you? That we can go back and tell our superiors who you are. He says, I'm not the one. I'm only the forerunner. Christ was also asked that question, who are you? thinking of when he appeared before Pilate. And after some questioning, it came out from the Jewish leaders that this man called himself the Son of God. And then Pilate was really worried. And he went back into the judgment hall and said, where are you from? Christ didn't say anything. Why? God had already spoken to Pilate. He had told his wife in a dream that this was a just man that he should have nothing to do with. When God reveals something to you, when he shows you his light, you are responsible for that light. If you reject that light, it's as if you turn back and go into the darkness. Christ didn't answer him when he asked where he was from. He wasn't interested in his condition when he was just a just man standing in front of him. 
If he didn't do anything with that light, what was he going to do with more revelation? From Pilate's hall, he sent to Herod, and Herod was glad to see him. He thought he should have seen a miracle from this man. God spoke nothing to Herod. Christ was silent. Because Herod already knew enough and did nothing with what he knew. So we have to be careful also what we do with the light given to us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him? No. One with another. One with another. So how do we know if we're walking in the light? You can approach this from the other way around and simply say, if we lack fellowship with other believers, if we're cutting off other believers, there's a very good chance we are not in the light. You see, that's a sign of it. God is love. His love is shown to his son. His son shares this love with us. We are in fellowship with him in that love. If that love is missing, we're not in fellowship with him. It's that simple. Sin severs the relationship between God and man. That point was abundantly illustrated in the first few chapters of the Bible. We see what the effects of sin on all of creation really was. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But we just finished saying that if we're walking in the truth, if we're walking in the light, we have fellowship one with another. How can this be? The Apostle John lays it out for us in the following verses. First, there is a mechanism whereby sin is cleansed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Notice that word, and just, to forgive us our sins. The price has been paid. Christ did not just die for past sin. If that's all it was, we would still be lost. To simply wipe out the ledger against us was not enough. Why? because we can add to that ledger again. It says of him that not only was he he killed for our sins, but he became sin for us. That's something much bigger. The principle of sin, the sin nature, became his, and he suffered its penalty. This is why this this verse can be true. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess. But then he doesn't just leave it there. You see, there are some that claim forgiveness only as a, uh, as, as a, as a legal term, as a, uh, as a positional thing, that I'm not really any different than any other sinner, I'm just forgiven. No. No. We are required to walk in the light. And this verse says, it says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. We haven't understood the basics of what his word teaches. But in case anyone would see, well, there you see, I don't need to live a holy life. I can't do it anyway. He says in the first verse of the following chapter, My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. The Christian is never intended to live in sin. To have his life defined by sinful actions or to live a defeated life. God never intended that for us. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light, that we may enjoy fellowship with him. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our Savior not only sat down at the right hand of God, having completed the work for us, which we could never do, but he now intercedes for us. He is our advocate, our lawyer that stands and shows his bleeding hands and the wound in his side that he suffered. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a simple verse, but a very powerful one. It shows us that God does not arbitrarily choose, pick and choose who is saved and who is damned. His blood has been shed. It is effectual for the sins of the entire world. He didn't just effectually die for one group of people and not for another. His blood has been shed for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So much for those who would say that I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And I understand that, that phrase, and it's not entirely bad, but we need to be very careful how we apply that. That is not an excuse for sin. We are to walk in the light. 
But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Of course. The one who keeps the word of God, who walks in the light, is in relationship with the one who is love himself. The love of God will be perfected in such a one. We are all called to that. There's no excuse. We are to walk in the light that the love of God would be perfected in us. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Who's the one who walked? Past tense? Christ. He is our example. We ought to walk as he did. That's a tall calling. But it's one that we have been given every tool necessary to fulfill. Christ had no special advantage in terms of um, abilities or resources that we do not enjoy. How do we know that? First, it says he was tempted in all points like as we are. He didn't live some sort of charmed life that Satan left him alone. In fact, I would say he was probably tempted more than any man in the history of the world. Every single temptation that you may experience, no matter how weird or perverted or off the wall you think it might be, I would say there's a very good chance that Christ suffered that same temptation. I think Satan threw everything he could at him. Everything. Yet he walked in the light, and there was no darkness in him. Not only that, it says in the beginning, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Last weekend we were in Ancaster and the, uh, the Bible class lesson was about this, uh, this idea of joy versus happiness. That was part of, part of the lesson that we were discussing. And I was thinking about the life of Christ. What this verse, verses 3 and 4, actually tell us is that when we are in relationship with God, when we walk in the light, we experience his love, we are in relationship with him, there is a, a love that is being perfected in us. And that, the byproduct of that love being perfected in us is joy. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. And I was thinking then about the life of Christ and the things that he experienced. You know, nothing was able to rob him of the joy that he had with the Father. We don't read about him crying out when the men whipped him. We don't read about uh, a cry of anguish when they drove the nails through his hands and feet. But when that relationship with his father was severed, when he was cut off from that fellowship with his father because he became sin for us, then he cried out, and I don't think there's ever been a cry like that in the history of the world. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the one time that joy was removed because that fellowship had been severed. 
So what that tells me for myself here, now, in this day and age, is that if I am in relationship with the Father, I will always have joy. Joy may not look like happiness. Happiness is a sort of a bubbly, frothy thing. But even when the froth dissipates, what's, what's left in the cup is joy. It didn't go anywhere. Happiness may evaporate, but the joy can still be full. To conclude, I'd like to just touch on a couple things that we read here together in, in chapter 2. Because I think it adds a little bit of additional color to this. First, John begins, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which, we, which ye have heard from the beginning. So what was that commandment? Here he doesn't even mention it. He says just it's the commandment that you've had from the beginning. I think it's very simple. He that doeth righteousness shall live. That was said in, in many different ways in the Old Testament again and again. If you do good, you'll live. You'll be blessed. If you do evil, you'll die. You'll be punished. It was a very simple system. Now, when God gives us a command, we know from his word that the law was good, righteous, and holy. So then what was wrong with it? Why could no one keep the law? When God gives a command, the command can be holy, just, and good as it was, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have the ability to fulfill it. That may seem a little odd. God asking us to do something that we can't fulfill? And on the surface it does. In fact, it sounds almost unjust. Ah, but it's not. That was actually God's mercy in disguise. The failure of everyone under the law was God's mercy because then none of us could keep it and so mercy would be shown on all. Because it was taken out of our hands, he could be merciful to all. It says he is the propitiation for our sins. And it's true. He lived righteous. He lived in constant communion with the Father, walking in the light, in the love of the Father, and fulfilled the law. Exactly as God intended. He was what Adam was supposed to be but failed. So that was the first commandment. There's two commandments here that, that the Apostle John is laying out for us. One, walk in righteousness and you shall live. And the second, he says, brethren, uh, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. So this commandment is true in Christ and also in us, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. And again, he doesn't give us the commandment. So what is the commandment? Well, we know what Christ said. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. That ye love one another 
as I have loved you. And now we take the old commandment and the new commandment and we put them together and we have the Christian life as the Apostle John describes it. Only possible through the power of God. So how do we know that we're a Christian? It's a valid question, maybe a bold one. We just simply assume, oh, so-and-so was baptized so many years ago. They've been a faithful attender in the church. Is that enough? No. We walk in the light as he walked, and we have love for one another. Those are the tests that we need to apply first to our own life. There's more that could be said. I encourage all of us to read the entire general epistle. He, the Apostle John lays it all out. I remember as a young believer reading these words and, and being alter, alternately crushed and elated at the things that I was reading because I thought I had messed up I sinned now. What can I do? I'm supposed to be righteous as he was righteous. And then I would read about the advocate and how I need to confess and forsake and walk in righteousness. You see, there's no cloak for sin here in this relationship. It's beautiful in its simplicity. And it teaches us how to have joy. What an elusive thing. Go to the local bookstore. Go to Indigo. Go on Amazon for that matter. And, and take a look at how many titles are in the self-help section or how to find happiness. How to find joy. How to live a joyful life. Your best life now and all that. This is something the world is pursuing. But they can't find it. They can't find it. Joy is only to be found when we are connected to the source of love itself. And joy is the byproduct. The problem with the world is it seeks joy apart from these things. And it cannot be found. May the Lord add whatever is lacking to the words and where I've perhaps misrepresented something. Uh, I ask for your forgiveness. It's this I see both truths reflected here. What to do if we do sin, but we are not to sin. Both truths are there. May the Lord add whatever is lacking. Would our brother please select a hymn? I apologize for going over time a little. There really isn't much to say, and I'm, I'm constantly amazed by how the truths of scripture can be distilled down into such a simple thing. Two commandments, to walk in righteousness and to love one another. So simple. You see, the problem with the world is the world seeks joy absent from these things. To cut joy off 
from relationship with God and walking in righteousness is like to cut a flower. It soon fades. It can't last. But when we are in relationship with the God who is love, that joy will flourish and will not die. It's interesting to see how through scripture the the pattern of distillation that happens. Moses brought the law from God and all the commandments that were given, some 600 odd, I think, commandments. From there it was distilled down to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And from there Christ took it down even further think, well, he took it down from three. He must have taken it down to one. No, two. And we see those reflected here. To love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the law and the prophets. God knew that we could not fulfill them. And by condemning all, he actually showed grace to all because it was taken out of our hands. One came and suffered and died in our place that we could experience that love and that joy and that peace. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. This concludes our service. Amen.